Welcome to the North Rock Church Podcast. For more great content and updates, visit northrockchurch.com. Enjoy the message. Good morning. How is everybody this morning? Wonderful. Sound a little sleepy, guys. I mean... Um, I did want to mention Pastor Chad is not with us this morning because he, so it is, um, the two year anniversary of Jody's dad passing away and they wanted to go, he wanted to go and help, um, have the family be together at their, her dad's property with her mom, have time to be together as a family over this weekend as well as it's the 25-year anniversary of their first date. So he wanted to do something romantic for her with this long weekend that they have. So he wanted to be with us, but also he wanted to care for his wife and family this morning and felt like that was a good way to do that for her. So um, that's where Pastor Chad is this morning. So um, we have been in a sermon series called what's happening to my church. And, um, I love that guy. You know, the world, I'm only almost 40, but who's turned 40 this year? We're having an eighties party. I've already decided. Um, so (laughs) Maybe we'll make it a church event. It'll be fun. Um, So the world has changed so much just even since, you know, I was young. And, And even in the last 10 years or so, like so much has changed about the world around us. Not just, I mean, I know we're talking, as we've been talking about this series, as we've been going through it, we've been talking about the ways that the church has changed and Christianity has changed and how culture has changed towards the church and Christianity. But in general, just the the world has changed. Like Josh and I were looking yesterday at this. I'm sure you've seen it where it says like in 1998, we were all told not to talk to strangers on the, no, no, no. What was it? 19, 1998, we were told not to get in cars with strangers. And then 2008, we were told not to talk to strangers on the internet. And, and now we talk to strangers on the internet to get in their cars. (laughs) Or to go to their house and stay. Instead of staying at a hotel, like, hey, stranger, I don't know you. Can I come stay in your bedroom? That's weird. I mean, it's weird when you really think about it, right? But it's become normal for us and commonplace, all these things. And so so the world around us is changing so much. And in some ways, I feel like I can't catch my breath. Like, I feel like it's, I think of it like Alice in Wonder, like Alice through the looking glass of this, it's this topsy-turvy, upside down, inside out, backwards, forwards world where you have to move uh, backwards to go forwards or face the wrong way to get where you're going or it's, it's just weird. It's strange and it's disorienting and it's frustrating and it's very natural for us in that when we have those feelings, when we have that sense to want to run and hide, to want to go back to where it's familiar and comfortable, and maybe even it really wasn't as good as we remember it, but we're remembering it better because right now feels uncomfortable. We don't like it. 
So that was, that must have been better because this isn't, this isn't fun. I don't like this. So I wanted to highlight, (laughs) I had all these plans for these experiments that I was going to do on you guys this morning for how we were going to disorient you. (laughs) Because that sounds really fun to me. (laughs) But (laughs) then I realized that um, people have been doing this for years, right, already, doing experiments to disorient people. And so I found a clip um, that I wanted to uh, show you guys. It's from an old uh, Candid Camera episode. So I'm sure that you... I know. What's that, right? I know I'm old. Okay. That last guy's my favorite. So part of me wonders, like, was that staged? But I don't know. He did look a little confused. So it's difficult when things are unfamiliar or things aren't going, like, you don't walk into an elevator and expect everybody to be looking backwards, right? Like, it's a social norm where we, we do this. We all stand a certain way unless it's really crowded and then you have to figure it out. But it's, it's, it's disconcerting. It's frustrating. Like, okay, what is, what is happening? Why are we, and, and yet nobody, like, nobody said, like, why are we, (laughs) that last guy, why are we turning in circles in the elevator? So, um, I picked this guy. I love this guy. I picked this, you know, when we were looking at this title and looking at this series, and I was thinking about this um, graphic, and I was, I was hoping that it wouldn't come across um, judgmental or critical of anyone that would ask this question and have this posture. Because it's absolutely natural to wonder what's going on when everything that's familiar and comfortable is off. We've talked a lot about how churches are closing, attendance is down, giving is down, culture's attitude towards church and Christianity has changed. People don't have a basic understanding of the Bible in the same way that they used to and God. And, and it's like even sometimes I, you know, it's, it's, it's uncomfortable to be like, oh, what are you doing on Sunday? Oh, I'm going to church. And then you worry like, oh, what's the person's response going to be towards me when I say this? sometimes, you know, and it's like, yeah, you, you cannot care, but you also recognize like, that's not a, that's not something we used to have or, or I don't know, at least me. Sometimes it feels scary and dark. And then I'll, I'll also say hearing, hearing these, these stats, hearing these things, hearing the things we've been saying the last couple of weeks about how this is changing Hearing someone say that something you love so much and you've devoted your time and your life to, hearing them say that it's no longer valid can make us feel really defensive. The first time that I heard some of these thoughts was in 2008. I was at Life Pacific College. I was in a class. I was reading a book. And the book was all about how um, the church needs to innovate, needs to recalibrate, it needs to be, um, it needs to adapt to be relevant. And I immediately felt threatened and angry and irritated and superior to the author 
this person has no idea what they're talking about. My friend took the same class a year later, and he borrowed my book, and he came back, and he gave it to me with kind of this smirk on his face. He was like, you didn't like this book very much, did you? And I flipped through the book, and I remembered that I had literally argued with the author through the entire book in the margins. I had written through the whole book, like, scriptural evidence of why they were wrong and why this was not okay and why we didn't need to change and and why this was, like, just trying to bait and switch or hurt people. Like, it just, I was so mad and I was so defensive about it. I was so defensive about it. I thought that when the authors were saying that the old ways wouldn't work, what they meant was that the old ways had never worked. But I was a product of the old ways. I loved the old ways. I longed for that. That was familiar to me. It was part of my family traditions. It was part of my, it was how I met my husband. It was how I met my best friends. It was where I met Jesus and where I got a call to ministry on my life. It was, it was my home through years where I was a teenager and home was hard. And I would say all the time when I was a teenager, I have two houses, but I don't have a home. Church was my home. So when someone starts judging how we're doing it and saying it's wrong, I felt like they were attacking my family. And I didn't want to hear it, and I just got mad. I just thought, they don't understand. We just need to try harder. We just need to show people what I experienced, and once they see that, they will love it the same way I loved it. The problem is that I wasn't taking into account the fact that culture had changed, that it was no longer 1996. So that was like probably a very minimal, very minimal thing to what the disciples were feeling when Jesus came on the scene. What must it have been like for them? They, first century Jews rose in the morning. The, many of his disciples were fishermen. They would go out. They would cast, they'd go out fishing in the morning before dawn. They'd cast their nets. They'd come back. They'd repair their boats. They'd repair their nets. They'd sell their, their catch that they'd got. They took care of their families. They had a rule and, and rhythm to their religious life where it revolved around the temple and it revolved around rituals and observances that were ingrained, deeply ingrained, going back centuries of this is how we do our relationship with God. This is our identity of who we are. This is what makes us who we are. And it's vital to, it's vital to everything. And then all of a sudden, Jesus comes into the world and he flips it completely on its head. And not only that, but he's basically telling them, hey, you think this is upside down, but this is right side up and you've been living upside down the whole time. So it's, it's this, it's, I cannot, I cannot, I cannot even. All right, here's another experiment. 
Let's experiment and see what it feels like when things are backwards. Call out when you know what this word is. Oh, good. I gave you an easy one. It gets harder. I was waiting for somebody to say when. Okay, next one. Light bulb. Light bulb. Purple. Okay. Are you ready for the last one? Oh, yeah, Jesse. <laughs> I mean, but it doesn't come necessarily automatically, right? Like, it takes a little bit automatically. Ha ha. It takes a little bit to figure it out. Anti disestablishmentarianism. What does it mean? Anybody know? I don't know. Jesse knows what it means. (laughs) All right. So. One of my favorite people to watch navigate this disorienting, frustrating, confusing situation is Peter. Oh, Peter. Peter is... Peter is well-intentioned, but makes a lot of really stupid mistakes. (laughs) Josh and I were saying, like, do you think rock was another meaning for him? (laughs) So Peter was a fisherman. He left his livelihood. So Peter was called to be a disciple of Jesus. He was out fishing. Jesus comes. He sees him fishing. He says, hey, how's your fishing going? He's like, not so good. Jesus says, try the other side of the boat. And Peter's like, okay. And so he does. And they catch a like record-breaking number of fish. And Jesus says, hey, how about a career change? And Peter's like, I'm all for it. And you got to wonder what his wife is thinking. Like, really, what is happening here? What are you doing? You didn't strategize. You didn't think, like, do they have, um, did they do their baby steps? Do they have an emergency plan? That's a financial peace joke, by the way. He's eager. He's ready to follow. He trusts Jesus. He is here for it. He is living his best life, and he has no idea what's going on. He's like completely clueless over and over and over. You see him do something and Jesus either like is patient with him or explains it or just flat out ignores the suggestion because it's like, I'm not even going to address that. One such circumstance is found in Matthew and that's where we're going to land for a little bit today. Matthew 16. Starting at verse 13. I got super excited there for a second. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, I'm going to tell you a secret. I kept saying that wrong, so I had to spell it out phonetically in my notes. He was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? 
Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barhona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Okay, so they've taken a two days walk outside of the sea of north of the Sea of Galilee, outside of the territory of Herod, Antipas, because what Jesus is about to talk to them about is dangerous conversations. There have been several would-be messiahs at this point who have come and said, hey, I'm the messiah, I'm the guy, and they get a bunch of followers and they cause a bunch of trouble, and then those people are harassed and, and um, there's hostility and danger and possibly even death, and then all of their disciples disperse, their followers disperse. And so it's dangerous to say to be known as someone claiming to be the Messiah. So Jesus makes a point of taking them well outside of Jerusalem, well outside of Herod's territory, into this secluded northern area to have this conversation. And then he's even more like sneaky in his question. He's like a spy here. He's like asking his code words, like, who do people say that the Son of Man is? You know, like, so in case anybody's listening, they don't know. You know, he's good. He's got, he knows the answer that they're going to give, right? So they start saying, well, this is what people say, and this is what people say. And then he wants to know specifically what they say. And who but good old Petey is happy to go and say, I'm going to be the spokesman and call it out. And you know, like, you know he's not quiet. You know he's got a loud voice. And he's out there going, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. And I wonder if all the rest of the disciples are kind of like looking around furtively like, oh, somebody, shh, don't. Is somebody going to kill us? Like, don't say it so loud. Peter, you got to be quiet. Inside voices. He's ready to jump in head first. But I think he still doesn't quite understand. And part of this, I think, is because Jesus says to him, like, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, Peter. <laughs> like, you don't under... I think he's, he says truth without actually understanding the truth he's speaking. So in his mind, and Jews of that day, and some still today, believe that God would send the an, an anointed king. Messiah in Hebrew and Aramaic means anointed king. So he's, when he says, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, he's saying, you are the anointed king. What that meant to them was that Jesus was going to be the spearhead of a movement to free Israel from oppression, bring justice and peace to the world. He was going to be a warrior who was going to defeat all of the pagan hordes that were all around and establish Israel back into their right standing. He was going to um, dethrone Herod, dethrone Caesar even, take over, destroy the temple, or will go in and take over the temple and take his rightful place and be the king and fulfill all of the scriptures. And Peter was only thinking of his present circumstances. He was not thinking of any, he wasn't thinking of us. 
we weren't on his radar of what the bigger picture. There was no bigger picture for Peter. He was talking about Jesus being a liter- He was enlisting. He was ready for battle. That's what he was signing up for. Jesus understood, I, I, I think Jesus understood that, obviously, because he's Jesus and he understands everything. He does give Peter a new name, though, and he says to him, Peter, which he's a Simon, but Peter in um, Aramaic means rock. And he says, you will be the foundation. You will be the foundation of this new church. I give you the keys of the kingdom. You will have authority in heaven, on earth. So Peter's super excited because he got the answer to the test right. He got a new name. That's kind of cool. A new nickname. And he got a promotion. He's now keeper of the keys. How do I know that Peter doesn't get it still? Because the very next conversation shows. So let's move on. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. This is one of those Alice in Wonderland moments where you have to go backwards to go forwards. In Peter's mind, they had just basically declared that Jesus was the one. He was the king. And it was time now to strategize a plan for going in, heading into Jerusalem, gathering supporters, taking over the temple, and setting Jesus on the throne. That was the plan at this point. That would be the logical plan for someone that thinks we're going to take over a country or we're going to, you know, set someone up on a throne. Jesus says to him, Jesus is telling them that it's a little bit different than that. It's a little bit backwards from that. Peter is disoriented. His rebuke to Jesus wasn't, I don't believe it was personal. It wasn't sabotage. It wasn't mutiny. It wasn't betrayal. In some ways, I feel like it was kind of like, hey, you know, dude, Jesus, we just agreed who you are. You got to stay on message if we're going to get followers. You can't go around saying that we're going to suffer and you're going to die. It's not the plan. Right? At first, too, I was a little, um, I've always been in reading this, a little like, gosh, Jesus, that was harsh. Why would you call him that? Like, you just called him, you just gave him a new nickname, and this one's not as good. I don't think, I think I'd want to stick with rock. 
But if you look at it, the only other time that Jesus spoke like this was in Matthew 4, 8 through 10. It's when Jesus is in the desert in his 40 days, in the wilderness in his 40 days of temptation. It's the last temptation. The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, go, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So the thing is here in that moment in Jesus's temptation in the wilderness, basically Satan's coming to him and saying, hey, I can give you everything that you're going to eventually get, but doing it my way, you don't have to suffer and die. I can get you what you want without having to take the hard way. And he, he, he resisted that temptation. But yet again here at the end, through the words of someone who Jesus loves and who loves Jesus, that same temptation is being presented. God forbid it. This shall never happen to you. You will never die. You don't have to die. Peter's not understanding the plan. And he's wanting to offer, he's, he's basically saying the same thing. You don't have to die. Why would you do that? Why would you choose to suffer? Why would, this doesn't make sense. So Jesus is once again resisting that same temptation that he resisted in the wilderness. Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling stumbling block to the plan that we have. You are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So yes, the plan is to go to Jerusalem. There, uh, Peter and Jesus are on the same page. They're going to go to Jerusalem. But Jesus is going to Jerusalem so that he can suffer at the hands of the very people that he should be overseen so he can be killed. He knows why that needs to happen. They don't. But it's all backwards. It doesn't make sense. It's going to look like they won. It's going to make him look weak. And the other thing here, if you notice, it says, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross. Has Jesus been on a cross yet at this point? Do they know what that means? We read it looking back going, oh, yeah, I know what that means. That makes perfect sense. We have all this history going back with what that word association is and what that means and the significance, so much of it. All they hear is we, we have to be humiliated. We have to be associated with foolishness and humiliation and the lowest of the lows. What are you talking about? You're the Messiah.
1 Corinthians 13, 12 says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just, I, just as I also have been fully known. Jesus' plan is a topsy-turvy, upside-down, through-the-looking-glass world. It doesn't make sense all the time to us. And it can cause us to feel fearful. It can, he, Peter, Peter was wanting to preserve something that was of value to him. He loves Jesus. He wants to see him in, raised up in his rightful place. He wasn't trying to disrespect Jesus or thwart the plan or sabotage what was going on. He didn't know. He didn't understand. All he knew was something that was important to him and valuable to him, something he'd given his life for, was looking like it was going away. And it didn't make sense. And he wanted to preserve it. And it made him afraid and defensive. Going, going forward, we can see that Peter still doesn't necessarily quite understand it. He, when the, the guards, or when, when they come in, in the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest Jesus, what does he do? He cuts off a guard's ear. Jesus puts it back on. Or grows it. At Peter, Peter follows Jesus. And he goes, and there he denies Jesus. Someone he said hours earlier, I would rather die than deny you. And yet here just a few hours later, three times, just as Jesus told him he would, he says, I don't know him. I'm not with him. And then what does he do? So Jesus has died. He's heard he's come back, and they've seen him once at this point, I think, but, but they're not really seeing him in the same way. He's not back in the same way. It doesn't look the same. So what do we see that Peter's done? John tells us Peter goes back to fishing. Because we saw in the elevator video, it's really hard to be different. It's really hard to stay the course of something different when everybody else is doing the same thing. He had been told that Jesus would die and rise again. He had been told that Jesus was the Messiah. He had been told that he was the foundation of the church. He had been told, all, made all of these promises and heard these astonishing things. But all he knew was he watched his Savior and his friend die. And everything looked like it was gone. So what does he do? He goes back to fishing. He goes back to what's familiar and comfortable and it's natural for us to do that. It's natural to want to go back to that. There's one more passage I want to look at. And it's one of my favorite passages with Peter. And I know I'm down on Peter. And I think part of it is because I, see, I feel like in a lot of ways I, I have seen a lot of myself. Like I can be super impulsive and then make really stupid mistakes and not understand. And like... You know, anybody else, I hope I'm not the only one that connects with that. But I watch him, and it's like a cautionary tale, like, oh, don't do that. It's better to just maybe keep your mouth shut instead of saying we should build a temp, like a shelter here. Just watch what Jesus and the prophets are doing. You know, things like that. 
But I love this moment between Jesus and Peter. So they're fishing. They're out in a boat. They're on the Sea of Tiberias. And Jesus appears on the shore. And he calls out to them, how's the fishing? Not so good. Try the other side. And John goes, it's the Lord. And oh, Peter, he jumps in the water and swims to shore. Because he just can't help himself. They all get there probably at the same time. They're in a boat, but he's now wet. But he loves Jesus and he swam to the shore. And he gets there and Jesus has a fire and they eat breakfast together. And you have to wonder what Peter's thinking in that moment. How does he feel? He was told that he was the rock and the foundation. And earlier, remember Jesus tells the parable of the house that's built on sand and the house that's built on rock. And you have to wonder if he's thinking and going, could anything have been less stable than me? Could anyone have been less of a solid foundation? I was shifting sand, and is this whole thing going to fall down? I denied him. What is he going to think? So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Which side is up? Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is going to die. Jesus is king. Jesus is dead. Jesus is alive. And now Jesus is here with him. Jesus shows Peter patience and grace in that moment and love for his failures and his mistakes and his sins. And he offers Peter reassurance and he reaffirms that call. He reaffirms it by saying, you have a role here. It's a beautiful moment, which unfortunately Peter ruins a minute later by asking a very jealous question about what's going to happen with John. But even that shows that we keep going. We keep moving forward. We keep failing forward. We keep falling forward. We keep figuring this out, figuring out what God's doing. Everything's changing. The world around us is shifting. Everything is changing except for one thing. The one thing that isn't changing is that we love God and he loves us. 
And all we have to do is follow him. We just have to look to him and hold on to him. In 2008, when I read that book, I was terrified. I was in the middle of going to Bible college because I wanted to be a pastor. I felt a calling to be a pastor. And here I am reading a book by somebody telling me that we shouldn't have pastors. Oh, well, I just spent quite a lot of money on this thing that we shouldn't have. And, and it, I felt threatened and I felt scared and I felt like, well, if, if this is what I'm supposed to be, if this is what I'm called to be, God, I mean, if this is wrong, then why would you tell me to be this? And it's not, it's not what the book was saying. First of all, I was like pissed. And so I wasn't reading it right. It was the beginning of some shifts and some transformations in the way Josh and I do ministry. We started recognizing how important it is for the entire body to be part of the church and not just pastors. We started recognizing that, yeah, we had gone to school for this, and that was part of the thing that was, you know, you go to school, you get a, a degree, and you're supposed to come out and be able to get a full-time job doing this. Well, that isn't necessarily how it works with pastors. And that's a good thing, I think. It's what we do here. Because in that type of a situation, what I learned is that it makes it more difficult for everyone else to feel a part of it. It makes it feel like there's a barrier and like you guys can't be part of it if you don't have the title if you don't have the degree or the education in the same way. Peter was a fisherman. His name was Rock. He got it wrong a lot of times. You guys, I'm not saying anything about you guys when I say that. I'm just talking about Peter. I've seen you guys ministering. I've seen the way that you, I've, you've ministered to me. There, there's no distinction we all have a calling. And when I started seeing that and thinking about, okay, well, if this is true, then we do have to change how we do things. We have to figure out different ways and different roads. And, and part of my fear was if I let go of this, that is everything I've been holding on to. I realized the things I was holding on to were traditions and not necessarily the important things. But I was terrified that if I let go, will everything slip through my fingers? What do I know to hold on to? What's important? And this moment between Peter and Jesus shows me what's important. He just sits down. Is he spending time with him? He's sitting down with him and he says, do you love me? Jesus is our peg in that sure place. We can lean on him, we can rest on him, we can hang everything on him and trust that no matter how our culture changes, no matter how things go, no matter what church looks like 40 years from now, he's still the same. Amen. So, The way of God is upside down, backwards front, mirror image to what we'd expect. To those who followed him, Jesus made astonishing claims about who he was and what was going to happen. Most people were puzzled. It wasn't just Peter. I'm just picking on him this morning. 
It's natural and normal to feel protective of the systems we're familiar with and want to keep them in place, to want to preserve something dear to us. So what we have to figure out is what about it is dear to us and how do we re, how do we um, recalibrate that? How do we, how do we reproduce that in the new ways? That same feeling, that same relationship, that same thing that we loved, what does it look like now, Right? So we want somewhere to stay. Maybe we're staying in some stranger's house instead of a hotel. We still have somewhere where we're staying. Right? So church, a gathering, could be a small group here at our church that we all organizing. Or, or it could be you guys invite somebody over to your house for dinner. That's church also in some ways, in many ways. That's what we learned. That's what we started doing. So I know I'm sorry, I'm a little bit over what I was hoping to be. So this, I'd like uh, the worship team to come on up. There was a couple things that I wanted to just pray over this morning. Three things. One. To people who feel disoriented and frustrated and confused defensive, all of those things. I'm still feeling it in a lot of ways because it's still, it's, we're in uncharted territory, right? It's natural. It's normal to feel that way. For, for us who are feeling that way, that we are praying over that this morning. I want to pray over that, that we have peace, that we have wisdom, that we have discernment, and that we are able to lean into God in new ways. Two, for anyone who feels like you've deserted God in that moment, that you've turned away from what he's asked or you've turned back or you've questioned in ways that you feel like has discounted you or discredited you from following through with the call that he has given you. I want to pray for that this morning, that that be broken in your life because it is absolutely not true. And then I just want to pray for all of us that we remember how much he loves us and that we can love him back and that we move forward together. I'm so excited for what's ahead for us here. So I want to pray, and then we'll sing a song real quick. Father God, I thank you so much for this group of people. I thank you for the fact that you are Messiah and everything that that means, that you are the son of the living God, that you died and rose again so we could be in a relationship with you and be in a community with you that looks completely different than what anyone ever would have thought or imagined. And Father God, I pray this morning For those times where we feel disconnected, frustrated, confused, disoriented, upside down, standing the wrong way in the elevator, and defensive for what we feel like is being removed or broken. Lord God, we lean into you and we trust you today. We look to you to guide us forward in new ways. We know you're already moving. Holy Spirit, we pray that your peace would be evident in our lives. That we would march forward in joy. That we would be unified together as a body. And God, I pray for anyone that feels that they have been discounted, discredited. Who feels that they've fallen away from what it is that you've called them to do. That they've made mistakes that can't be forgiven. In Jesus' name, I pray that that is broken. In Jesus' name. Lord God, we love you.
and you love us, and we accept your grace. We ask for your forgiveness, and we move towards you in new ways today. In Jesus' name, amen. Lord God, lead us in love to those around us. We thank you, God, for this time. We do say a prayer every week together. If you're with us for the first time or if this is your first time praying it, I would love an opportunity to meet with you afterwards. Um, We just like to take time together to acknowledge that we are living our lives for God and what that means for us as a body. Lord Jesus, I invite you into my life. I believe that you died on the cross for my sin. I pray and trust. Amen. Amen. All right. Have a great rest of your week. Be blessed. See you later. Thanks for listening to the North Rock Church Podcast. For more information about our church and upcoming events, check us out at northrockchurch.com or you can find us on Facebook or Instagram.